0: a lot of men talked of death and dying we knew a lot of us would not come back but we just had to accept it lance corporal marshall 11th service battalion east lancashire regiment aka the accrington pals psalm 1916. Hey folks, hello and welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast episode 5, Somme, the Stahlhelm, the Tin Hat, and the Cask Adrian, part 2. In part 1, we took a look at the German soldier getting ready to face the Allied onslaught on the Somme, as well as the elaborate and thorough defenses put up by the German army on the Somme front. We also took a brief look at the French soldier on the Somme and how the French 6th Army was laying waste to the German lines south of Maricourt and all the way down to the village of Faye. Today, we'll take a look at the British soldier in 1916 as he and thousands of his mates readied themselves for the much-anticipated Big Push. An admin note, my apologies to anyone who has tried to use the map page on the podcast website, www.firstworldwarpodcast.com. Putting up a cool Google map has been bloody troublesome to me. In the meantime, if you listen to the podcast and aren't moving, focus Google Maps towards Albert, France, and then go from there. If you listen to the podcast and are moving or driving, please check a map once you reach home or the office. Stay safe. All right, thanks. On the Somme from Maricor and on to the north of Serre village stood the men of the British 4th Army. To the north of Serre at Comcourt stood men from the British 3rd Army as boundaries had shifted a bit. The Tommies in the trenches and those packed together in the villages and hamlets behind the trenches were very much different from the French and the Germans. The British army that manned its part of the Western Front in 1916 was largely unrecognizable when compared to the original Sixth division contingent force that had crossed the channel in 1914. The BEF that had come over in that first summer of war was a cracked body of highly professional volunteers that had significant combat experience from colonial policing duties. As these men, called regulars, but soon to be dubbed the old contemptibles, struggled to hold back the German assault on Belgium and France. A tsunami of British men back home rallied to Lord Kitchener's call for an additional 100,000. And that your country and your king need you. Within one week of Britain's declaration of war with Germany, the 100,000 needed had signed up. Hundreds of thousands more stood in line waiting to join the ranks. If that original force of six divisions could be even partially preserved, the survivors would be the experienced NCOs and junior officers needed for the new army that was being born. Sadly, the old contemptibles weren't preserved. Instead, they held the line at Ypres in November 1914 and were immolated there. By 1915, very few of these veterans remained, and by June of 1916, even less of them were around. This came to drastically affect the new armies being raised, as there would be critical shortages of those experienced NCOs and officers to lead them. Already, the recruitment and enlistment process in Britain had cracked under the onslaught of patriotic and or excited men signing up in 1914, as Lord Kitchener lost control of the process days after Britain entered the war. Also, due to his regular army soldier bias towards territorial forces, He preferred that the new battalions forming all over Great Britain do so at the local level. This meant that these raw recruits wouldn't have access to the inadequate but established military structure already in place unless they joined a territorial unit from the get-go. So let's discuss the titles Regular, Territorial, and New Army. Regular soldiers in the British Army were men who had already been full-time active-duty soldiers at the time the war started. These were typically well-trained men with several years' service at home and overseas in the colonies of the British Empire. Service in the colonies likely meant a regular soldier had combat experience from the policing duties having an empire necessitated. In terms of training and experience, a regular soldier would be at the top. Next would come the territorial troops. These guys were like the National Guard and the Reserves in the U.S. and elsewhere, being that they were part-time soldiers who drilled a few times a year and had some military training. Having been officially created in 1908, the territorials as we just saw with Lord Kitchener, already had a reputation of, quote, a few hundred thousand young men officered by middle-aged professional men who are allowed to put on the uniform and play at soldiers, end quote. And guess who that quote came from? Yep, Lord Kitchener. This was not always the case. Although many thousands of men had a habit of not showing up for yearly drills. So in terms of training and experience, the territorial of the British Army would be under the regular soldier. Then come the new armies, below that of the territorials in training and experience as last week they were clerks, bankers, or factory workers. And now they had signed themselves up to be soldiers of His Majesty's forces. These guys had zero training, and they needed it quickly if they were ever to be sent to France. These eager men had signed up in their hometowns at local associations that were all busily raising units to send across the channel. Raising units at the local level meant the UK would see something it would never see again, the formation and creation of the PALS Battalions. The PALS Battalions were really a remarkable movement, one that could only happen in the Victorian era of 1914 and could and would never happen again. The late historian John Keegan described the PALS well in his book, The Face of Battle, as, quote, A story of a spontaneous and genuinely popular mass movement which has no counterpart in the modern English-speaking world and perhaps could have none outside its own time and place. A time of intense, almost mystical patriotism and of the inarticulate elitism of an imperial power's working class, a place of vigorous and buoyant urban life, rich in differences, and in a sense of belonging to workplaces, to factories, to unions, to churches, chapels, charitable organizations, benefit clubs, boy scouts, boys brigades, Sunday schools, cricket, football, rugby, skittle clubs, old boys societies, city offices, municipal departments, craft guilds, to any one of those hundreds of bodies from which the Edwardian Britain drew his security and sense of identity. End quote. Under the promise of Lord Kitchener that men who joined together should serve together, cities, towns, associations, and companies quickly raised units in the heady days following Britain's declaration of war on Germany. Locally-based battalions popped up everywhere. Liverpool quickly raised the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th Liverpool battalions. The town of Accrington raised the Accrington Pals, known officially as the 11th Service Battalion, Accrington East Lancashire Regiment. London's boroughs raised its Pals battalions, adding the names Shoreditch, Islington, West Ham, and Bermondsey to the rosters of army units. I really hope I pronounced those names correctly. Men from all walks of British life joined the ranks. The First to join were the unemployed, many from the construction industry, as it had hit a slump in the months before the war started. The Royal Fusiliers, City of London Regiment, featured four public schools units, along with another unit manned by stockbrokers and another by bankers. In her book titled "Somme," Historian Miss Lynn MacDonald illustrates this point by examining Company B of the 13th Battalion of the Rifle Brigade. Quote, There was the Welsh mob of No. 6 Platoon, B Company, actually a group of civil servants from Cardiff who had joined up together. There was the Boys Brigade, who made up all of No. 13 Platoon and half of No. 14. There were the gamekeepers, eight of them, who had left the pheasants on the Wynyard Park estate to look after themselves for the duration of the war. The brewery boys had all worked together at Bass Rutley. There were twelve pairs of brothers in the battalion. Jack Knotman had been an acrobat on the music halls. Jack Cross, now a sergeant in C Company, had been a footman and valet, to Sir Eric Barrington, and kept his platoon comfortably supplied with the gloves, socks, scarves, and balaclava helmets that must have been knitted non-stop below stairs at 62 Cadogan Place. So regularly did they arrive by every other post. Rifleman Adams, on the other hand, prevailed upon his comrades to carry his rifle on long marches, and in return, regaled them with the quails and aspic tinned pineapple ham, galantine, and occasionally caviar, contained in his parcels from Fortnum and Mason. There was rifleman Arthur Wright, one of the Bermondsey boys, who made no bones about having been a professional burglar and who had seen service in one of His Majesty's prisons before joining His Majesty's forces. There was Dougie Jones, the baby of the battalion, barely enough to have got away with enlisting at the age of 15, and who, in a post-war incarnation was to become Aubrey Dexter, a successful actor. Rifleman Phipps, known as Old Chelsea, was the oldest member and admitted to having a son in the trenches. Partial to Kippers, which his wife dispatched to France with faithful regularity, he was still living down the episode when he had caused the entire battalion to stand to for a gas attack as a result of frying a little supper for himself in the trenches." End quote. To personalize all of this, especially for those of us here in the United States, the biggest city in my immediate area is called Gloucester, Massachusetts. To everyone else in the world, it would be called Gloucester, but that's the Boston accent for you. But to bring the Pals process to life, let's imagine Gloucester was located in the UK in 1914. Answering Lord Kitchener's call, all the men around here start signing up at the Gloucester recruiting station, but they're all organized by their towns and villages. So in short order, the Gloucester Regiment, aka the Gloucester Pals, would be raised. In the regiment, There might be the Manchester Pals in one battalion, the Rockport Pals in another, and another battalion might be called the Longshoremen Pals from guys who all signed up from from the docks on Gloucester. The new soldiers of the Pals battalions were energetic and eager to do their bit to get over to France, start kicking ass and taking Bosch names. For many like the men of the Salford Pals from Salford near Manchester. It was also an escape from the drudgery of industrial era, Great Britain with its rampant wealth inequality and chaotic work availability. The war was seen as a way out of same factory, different day that characterized so many working class lives. Hundreds of men lined up each day to sign up during the beginning weeks and months of the war. Many were in a rush too, as in autumn 1914, the impression was still that the war would be short, but they would have to be trained first. As this was done on the local level, everything from the units to the training programs had to be built from scratch. The new recruits went without uniforms and rifles for months as everything was in short supply and the fighting men in France had priority. Dugouts, here meaning older men, older retired men, dug out from retirement to command the new units, found themselves suddenly in charge of motley crews of civilians with no bloody idea as to what soldiering was about. Someone who might have been a Boy Scout might find himself an acting corporal or sergeant, and anyone who had gone to a good school might be promoted to subaltern or lieutenant. Uh, For us Yanks and Sammys out there, a subaltern is the equivalent of a Butter Bar 2nd Lieutenant. Training turned out to be a long and arduous affair. Albert Andrews, a member of the 19th Manchester Pals, shows in his diary-style memoir titled Orders Are Orders that he signed up in September 1914, but it was fully 14 months later before he set foot in France. Training was long, but haphazard, leaving men inadequately trained. This was a problem that despite their long training, they remained untrained and untested. The officers and NCOs in charge of them were frequently equally inexperienced. Many of these men knew the basics of their job, but certainly not the finer points. They hadn't yet experienced battle and nor did they have a veteran sergeant or lieutenant who could show them a handy trick or two that couldn't be found in the training manuals. One example of this predicament was that of British artillerymen. In the southern sector of 4th Army's front, BEF gunners had assistance and examples to follow from the French army gunners slinging rounds right next to them. As a consequence, the bombardment there would have more effect on the German defenders. To the north, however, the gunners there could throw shells at the Germans, but the finer points of the developing creeping barrage being practiced at Verdun was considered too difficult and thus not employed. BEF gunners also did not have the necessary training in counter-battery fire, which involved triangulating the whereabouts of the enemy's guns and then targeting them for annihilation. French artillerymen were pros at counter-battery, again, having learned the hard way, but it was paying dividends now at Verdun and at the Somme. This lack of anything but the most basic skills with British gunners would have repercussions for the 4th Army. These men, both raw PBIs, poor bloody infantry, and raw gunners, were now tasked with blasting, assaulting, and conquering one of the Western Front's most complex defense systems from a battle-hardened enemy who had spent years preparing his battlefield for just this attempt. When the Pals battalions started arriving in France throughout 1915 and early 1916, they would be introduced to trench duties and frontline duty in a cushy sector of the line. These men joined the growing ranks of the BEF as it took over more and more of the Western Front from the French Army. A private Pollard, quoted in the book Accrington Pals by William Turner, noted when his unit took over the lines opposite Serre Village on the Somme in early April 1916, how it was to be this close to the action now. Quote, We then, in our innocence, walked about the streets of Kolenkamp just behind BEF lines, gazing round at the wreckage and picking up empty cartridge cases. We thought how wonderful it was to be at the front, End quote. Frontline duty in the trenches facing the enemy and getting hit with enemy artillery began to wear off some of that newbie eagerness and enthusiasm. That same... Private Pollard was soon after in trenches on a work detail when, quote, then I heard a noise. I first thought of a train coming, but it was a train coming through the air and blowing up around me. A shell crashed only yards away. I was never so scared in my life. I tried to get in a small dugout, but it was already full of men. The old hands knew what was coming. I got down on my knees at the bottom of the trench with the other men. I thanked God I had a spade to put over my head. We heard over the noise in order to put on our gas helmets. As we struggled to put them on, some men were being carried away and laid out. The shelling eventually ceased and we relaxed." End quote. As he later trudged back to camp, Private Pollard thought warily, this is my future and there is no way out of it. The British men marching to the front and into their ready positions in the days before the big attack came in generally high spirits though. As Albert Andrews of the Manchester Pals marched towards the trenches, British artillerymen encouragingly shouted out that, we'll give them hell. They were moving towards the front, towards the big push that everyone now knew was coming. Some, like Private Pollard, above with the Accrington Pals, felt helpless, like their lives were being led in a direction where they had no control. Others resigned themselves to it and hoped to do their bit. As many entered the shot-up and shelled rear areas just behind the front, marching and singing as they went along, it takes your mind off the marching, they were frequently confronted with a sobering sight that could only be foreshadowing. Other troops digging large holes in fields by the roads. These weren't new trenches. They were new graves. The British Army knew there would be mass casualties when the attack came, and in the summer weather, the dead would need to be buried as quickly as possible. Rear echelon troops were trying to get ahead on the job. Seeing these men digging graves usually made the marching troops stop singing almost immediately. So the divisions of General Rawlinson's fourth army were then a mix of regular army, territorial, and new army divisions. These distinctions were superficial really as all of the divisions by now were a mix of the three types of British soldier. A regular army division like the 7th Division opposite Mametz might have a Kitchener Brigade that was part of it now. Old sweat divisions like the 29th facing Beaumont-Amel was mainly stacked with pre-war soldiers, but also featured a Pals Battalion and the Newfoundland Regiment made up of Canadian volunteers who were part of the British Army and not the Canadian Corps. New army divisions like the 34th at La Boiselle, the 32nd and 36th between Tipeval and Beaumont-Amel, and the 31st opposite Serre were bolstered by one brigade of regular army soldiers in its ranks. The majority of the 500,000 men of the 4th Army spread out in 16 divisions on the Somme and behind it were generally willing but lacking in experience. This was the case from General Rawlinson on down. Many men just didn't have enough experience for the jobs they now held. But it was the fourth army that they had and they had to make it happen. On June 26th, the Allied bombardment continued and the clear summer weather needed to observe its effects On the german trench lines gave way to rain and mists with lulls in the barrage trench raiding continued and with no aerial observation available it was vital that someone somewhere get eyes on the barbed wire out there opposite the french six armies sector the german trenches dugouts and concrete machine gun nests were being systematically destroyed near dompierre The Germans were being worn down by having to constantly man the trenches under bombardment because the French sent over raiding parties all the time. French were also figuring out the positions of German artillery batteries and were busy taking them out of the picture. General Fayol intended to sweep away as much resistance as he could with a storm of shell fire. The British had the same hopes for their barrage but their artillery wasn't proving as effective as that of the French. The BEF had stockpiled 2,960,000 shells for this, and now they were steadily drawing that number down. But the shells coming out of the 18-pounder guns hitting the trenches were shrapnel shells designed to take out troops in the open. They were not designed to cut wire, and consequently, they weren't doing it very well. When the weather was clear, observers could see giant plumes and geysers of dirt flying in the air and thought the German wire entanglements must be getting chopped up, but good. But shrapnel shells had that effect. They made dramatic bursts once they exploded, but they weren't cutting as much wire as was hoped. British trench raids were reporting back that not only were they finding vast sections of barbed wire still uncut and standing, but that large numbers of Germans remained in their trenches and they were putting out heavy rifle and machine gun fire. It wasn't just that the BEF was mistakenly using the wrong type of artillery shell for the job, which they largely were. It was a bunch of things that weren't working. The gunners were inexperienced. The bombardment was loud and could be heard in London, but up to a third of the shells being fired weren't exploding as they should. In their rush to provide the necessary millions of shells required for a four to five day bombardment, munitions factories, both scrupulous and unscrupulous, cranked out material day and night, and both the explosive charge and the attached fuses were not of the best quality. The British had 1,500 guns, but not enough of them were heavy artillery with corresponding shells that could dig down into the earth and cave in German dugouts. There were also not enough high-explosive shells to do that kind of task. Destroying the German artillery wasn't being addressed with the level of concern it needed, and the Germans m- massed their guns by keeping them quiet until they were absolutely needed. The weather remained miserably rainy and foggy, to the point where two more days were added to the bombardment schedule. The attack date would now be July 1st, as had been originally planned. Shells screamed down and continued to sledgehammer the German defenses as front Kemper's hunkered down in their dugouts or trenches. More raids by British troops confirmed the bombardment from Fricor on north wasn't doing its job. The enemy's barbed wire was still there Almost all of it was still standing. But Rawlinson and then Haig read their reports and came away saying they were satisfied with the artillery's progress and softening up Fritz. Why, I'm not entirely clear. The last days of June rumbled by slowly as the British and French readied themselves with the roar of the barrage in their ears. On the German side, Casualties were adding up. German Army Hauptmann Klug of a Bavarian reserve regiment noted during a relief of a Prussian company that had been shelled down to just under 30 men. Throughout the entire company area, there were only three dugouts which offered some guarantee of protection. In order to enter the company commander's dugout, it was necessary to climb over dead and unburied Prussian soldiers. It took until long into the night to reestablish sentry positions in the front-line trench. The only contact was with the 12th Company to the south. One platoon of this company lost its way shortly before dawn and ended up in our position. The link back to battalion headquarters in Bayernwald was still working. Food was got through to us from there, but no water. The carriers could not pass the drum fire. For the Germans stuck in the first position trench lines, the bombardment was wearing down nerves to an alarming degree in some men. Under heavy stretches of trommelfeuer, or drum fire, where so many shells hit at once that their individual explosions formed an indistinct wall of noise and rocking earth, food and water couldn't be brought up as we just saw. The pounding was endless. By now it had been going on for days. Shells hitting close stole the air out of soldiers' lungs when they exploded. Repeatedly being rocked and buffeted by shell bursts, ruptured eardrums and slammed brains within skulls. It was impossible to sleep under this terrible noise, yet the constant pounding left a man's senses dulled to where he was almost in a groggy state. More than a few were starting to crack under the strain. Quote, it is still going on, 96 hours of it now. What will be the upshot? Heaven knows. It is night, thou fearsome night. What will thou bring us? Asked every man. Shall I live till morning? Haven't we had enough of this frightful horror? Five days and five nights now, this hell concert has lasted. Hell indeed seems to be let loose. One's head is a madman's. The tongue sticks to the roof of the mouth. Five days and five nights. A long time. To us, an eternity. Almost nothing to eat and nothing to drink. No sleep, always wakened again. All contact with the outer world cut off. No sign of life from home, nor can we send any news to our loved ones what anxiety they must feel about us. How long is this going to last? Still, there is no use thinking about it. If I may not see my loved ones again, I greet them with a last farewell. That was a passage from the diary of a Gefreiter Eifersmann of the German 26th Reserve Division mana and his buddies would have to sit there and wait it out as best they could. Others were exhausted to the point of madness, but remained ready. Next to them were their weapons. As soon as the shelling stopped, they were to grab those machine guns, the heavy ammunition boxes, and their rifles and get up those dugout stairs. They had practiced this dozens, hundreds of times. As we heard at the beginning of episode four, Unteroffizier Friedrich Henkel of Reserve Infantry Regiment 99 was one of those who remained ready. He had stated, seven long days there was ceaseless artillery fire, which rose ever more frequently to the intensity of drum fire. The torture and the fatigue, not to mention the strain on the nerves were indescribable. There was just one single heartfelt prayer on our lips. Oh God, free us from this ordeal. Give us release through battle. Grant us victory, Lord God. Just let them come. The Germans had received several snippets of information, especially from a heavily wounded British soldier captured on the German wire, and more from a British deserter named Lippmann that the Allied attack would be on June 29th. But it never came. The bombardment pounded away through June 29th. It pounded on through June 30th as the hours passed by June 1916 entered the past. All along the Somme front, men prepared themselves In 30th Division Sector opposite German-held Montauban, Albert Andrews and the 19th Manchester Pals prepared themselves. It was a new day. Andrews and 120,000 other Tommies and poilus began to make their final adjustments to their equipment, finishing quick letters to loved ones, checking and rechecking weapons. The minutes were ticking down through the hours to the moment when the barrage would halt the officers would blow out their trench whistles and the scramble up the ladders and the rush out over the top would be on them. It was Saturday, July 1st, 1916. All right. Any questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast@gmail.com at gmail.com or hit me up through the website www.vrdunpodcasts firstworldwarpodcast.com or the battles of the first world war podcast page on the facebook just recently i heard from listener kurt on how he's enjoying the podcast and it totally made my day now to also make my day if you enjoy the podcast please consider leaving a review of bfwwp on itunes More reviews will get us higher rankings, which will get us noticed more often, and we'll be able to get the word out on World War I battles to others out there who enjoy podcasts like us. Also, if you would like to show your love for the podcast with a financial contribution to help run and maintain it, there is a PayPal button right on the website where you can make a donation of your choice. The website is, again, www.firstworldwarpodcast.com. I'd like to thank everyone who has already contributed. As always, thank you so much for taking the time to listen. It's you listeners out there who make this thing come alive. Talk to you again soon. Take care.